Well, hey, everyone, good to see all of you here. Thanks for joining us online. And we want to say on this Memorial Weekend, we want to honor those who have lost their lives in service to our country, protecting our freedoms. And so can we please give them our gratitude this morning? Thank you. All right, with that, we are in week three of a series called While We Wait. And in this series, we're working our way through First and Second Thessalonians, two letters originally written by this guy named Paul who was an early convert of Christianity. And these letters are now included in our New Testament, the second half of the Bible. And one of the major themes pulled out from First and Second Thessalonians is that the people who made up this church in Thessalonica were wondering when Jesus was going to come back. See, he had died and resurrected, and then he promised to return again. And because it had been a few years, they they asked Paul, while we wait, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Now, good thing for us, the same questions they were asking back then are applicable to us today, because as far as I know, Jesus hasn't returned yet. So today, the question we're going to look at is this, how should We grieve. Now, people deal with grief in all kinds of ways, but especially in relationship to death, grief can make people uncomfortable. So, people might use humor as a way to help other people cope. In case you showed up this weekend looking for some tombstone ideas, I've got a few for you. The first is this one says, Raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom, and still there was love. Okay, that's something to celebrate. Or how about this one? I told you I was sick. That's going to be me, the hypochondriac, and be like, I told you, Emily, I was sick. I told you. Or, Or they deal with grief by writing obituaries like this one. This was written by someone who passed away. He said, I leave behind my wife who recently has come into a lot of money. I also leave behind a riding mower, snow blower, weed eater, rake, shovel, hammer, drills, and a bunch of tools, and a whole lot of other stuff that I'm sure no one will know what to do with at all. He also writes, I also love the Minnesota Vikings, so I respectfully ask for six Vikings players to serve as pallbearers so they can let me down one last time. He said, for anyone wondering, yes, I wrote this so my family wouldn't have to. Thank you, guy, for writing your own obituary. Now, people might use humor to deal with grief because that's because the primary feeling we're often trying to avoid is that unwanted feeling of sadness. Again, the question we're asking today is this, how should we grieve? But maybe we need to take a step back and ask, what is grief? Well, to keep it simple, just a simple definition, grief is an emotional reaction to loss. And we experience loss in all kinds of ways, loss of a relationship, loss of a job, or just loss of the way things used to be. And I'm sure this is a real form of grief that many of us have experienced. But the kind of grief we're going to look at more specifically today is the grief we deal with because of this, because of death. Now, assuming that everyone is alive here today, it's likely we've already experienced the death of someone we knew and loved. 
And we've had an emotional reaction to that absence of the person no longer here. So let me ask you, how did you grieve? What did that look like? Maybe you cried for a day and then forced yourself to move on. Maybe you've never stopped thinking about that person. In fact, even though it's been several years, you were just walking through a store the other day and burst out crying for no reason. Perhaps you relate to the psalmist who wrote, I am worn out from my groaning all night long. I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. We've all experienced grief in one form or another, but we've all expressed it in different ways. Again, how should we grieve? Which brings me to what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, which is our anchor verse today. And Paul writes this, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. We're going to come to find that Paul believes those who are dead are just asleep because one day they will be raised back to life. Then he continues, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Notice right away, Paul says, don't grieve like the rest of mankind. In other words, there's a way they grieve that we shouldn't. Therefore, there must be a way we should grieve. Now, to give some context to this verse, many of these Thessalonians were wondering how to deal with grief because it's largely assumed that some of their friends and family members had been martyred for their faith, and they desperately wanted Jesus to return again so he could end their grief and reunite them with their loved ones, just as he promised to do. And they were hoping Paul would respond with just just a little bit longer, Just a couple more days, maybe a couple more weeks, but Jesus is coming back soon. But see, Paul offered no such timeline. Instead, what he says is, do not grieve like the rest of mankind, which begs the question, how does the rest of mankind grieve? Well, for one, people grieve through numbing. Now, initially, especially early in grief, we'll feel numb. That's that's normal. But as grief continues, it seems the world encourages people to do whatever it takes to get rid of that sadness and pain. And that's why numbing, whether it's through drinking too much or taking pills or overeating, is one of the most common ways that people deal with grief long term or people deal with grief through avoidance. Slightly different than numbing, people will do whatever it takes to avoid those feelings. We we tell ourselves, I'm not going to cry I'm not going to think about it. Or we think things like, well, God says I'm supposed to be full of joy. Therefore, I can't feel sad. I can't grieve. I'm here to tell you that couldn't be more wrong. Psychologists refer to this as jack-in-the-box grieving. Stuff, stuff, stuff those feelings down. And eventually, inevitably, those feelings will explode back up one way or the other. Pastor and author Pete Scazzaro says this, in our culture, addiction has become the most common way to deal with pain. We watch television incessantly. We keep busy running from one activity to another. We work 70 hours a week, and then he says, anything, anything to avoid the pain. Or mankind deals with grief by simply moving on as quickly as possible because many people are uncertain about what happens beyond death. They will move on to whatever else 
will make them less sad. Now, maybe as I list some of these things, you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, that's me. That's how I grieve. That's how I'm currently grieving. And, and if that's you, Paul's words, this message is not intended to heap shame. No, it's to let you know that there, there might be a better way. Because while I stated that grief is an emotional reaction to loss, grief is actually much more than that if we allow it to be. See, the rest of mankind, as Paul refers to, they'll just react to loss. And where do they find themselves? Doing the things that come most naturally to us, numbing, avoiding, and moving on. But Paul says those are people who grieve without hope. Christians, we have a hope. We have a hope that should comfort and guide us through grief. Therefore, what I want to propose today is this, is that grief can be navigated in an intentional way. That's right, that is good and healthy. Rather than just this emotional reaction to loss that leaves us wandering aimlessly, for people with hope, there is such a thing as good grief. There's such a thing as good grief, a process that can help us navigate these complex emotions of loss and sadness. But to be crystal clear, while this process can help, I want to let you know, and you probably already know this, that grief, grief is never easy. In August 2022, I lost a really close friend. He was the kind of friend who encouraged me when I needed it most. He was a spiritual mentor. He did things like show up at my seminary graduation when I didn't even want to be there, okay? He helped eliminate moles from my backyard when I couldn't. The kind who just, he was always there. And in some ways, I'll... I'll never forget the emotional reaction I had to first hearing about his death. The confusion, the, the sadness, the anger. In other ways, I can barely remember what happened in those following hours, days, and weeks. I even officiated his funeral. And while I remember being a part of it and, and writing words to share, I couldn't tell you exactly what I said or how I said it. Again, grief is this reaction to loss, and the, the emotions flooded my system in ways that I'll never forget and also never remember. Can you relate? Psychologists will tell you that the grief process should look a lot like this. It starts with that loss, and there's shock, and you experience denial, anger, and there's the guilt and depression, but eventually it, it heads up and to the right. You know, you establish new patterns, there's hope, and you finally make that adjustment. But for me and for many of us, the grief process looked a lot like this. I mean, that's what it did for me, and I'm guessing it has or will for you. The grieving process is rarely linear and straightforward. It's not going to be clean and tidy, but there are things the Bible suggests we can do to navigate grief in an intentional way that is good and healthy. So how should we grieve? Well, the first is we got to grieve and, and grieve with people. 
in our world today because numbing, avoiding, and moving on are so common. I suppose I need to lead out with this. We should grieve. The Bible is full of people who openly do so. 40% of the Psalms are, are some sort of lament, which is a form of expressing grief. Plus, Jesus modeled grief for us, and he grieved with people. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus knew he was headed to the cross, Luke writes about Jesus being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And he was grieving so much that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And then after he was done, he went looking for his closest friends, his disciples, because he wanted to be with them. When he heard about the death of his really good friend Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, it says this, Jesus wept. He wept openly in front of Mary and Martha and others when he was grieving the loss of his friend, even though he'd eventually raised Lazarus back to life. So why is it when we grieve, we often feel like we want to hide or stuff those feelings and grieve alone? Why is that? In the book, Grieving with Hope, people reflect on their own grieving process and offer words of wisdom and advice to people who are currently going through it. And this woman named Doreen, writing about her grieving process, said this, people would call me, and I wouldn't return the phone calls. I didn't want to talk to anybody because I felt like nobody understood. I kept thinking, I don't need any help. I just need to be by myself. But then she concludes, but, but you can't do it yourself. There's just no way. In Proverbs 18.1, it says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. It is unwise to isolate ourselves. The more we do, the worse off we'll feel. We may not feel like grieving and grieving with people, but we must. Pastor Meg Marshman talking about her grieving process, said, if you don't talk it out with someone, you're gonna take it out on someone. That's the truth. We, we have a fantastic ministry at, at our church that cycles about once a quarter called Grief Share. And I'd encourage you, if you're someone who's recently lost someone, to reach out at a pat, to a pastor at your campus or online and find out when the next one starts. But we are supposed to grieve and grieve with people. Okay, the second way to deal with grief is to grieve with expectation. You know, if we attend a funeral, we'll often find people aren't sure what to expect beyond death. People may offer a hesitant word or two about seeing their loved ones again, kind of, you know. But if we truly knew what was on the other side of death, for those who had faith in Jesus Christ, we might have the same expectation of Paul who wrote these words, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul is wrestling with whether it's better to live or to die. Now, to be clear, he's not suggesting he's going to take matters into his own hands and, in fact, concludes it's better for him to remain alive. But his desire to be with Jesus is so strong, you see him wrestling with what the better future actually is. 
What kind of hope for life beyond death could possess someone to wrestle with that kind of question, the question of life or life beyond death? It's kind of like the story of a little girl named Zoe. When Zoe was three, she lost a pet turtle and she cried her little eyes out. And so her dad said, Zoe, listen, I'll go to the pet store and buy you a new turtle. But Zoe knew you can't swap one life for another. It's not the same turtle. So dad said, okay, Zoe, I'll throw the turtle a funeral. But Zoe still cried and cried because, well, she didn't know what a funeral was. And so her dad said, Zoe, a funeral is a lot like a birthday party. Okay, we'll have cake and ice cream and lemonade and balloons. And we'll invite all of your friends over because this turtle has died. And so Zoe stopped crying. She liked the sound of that. But when they looked down at this turtle, this turtle, well, it started to move. Okay, this, this turtle wasn't dead at all, suddenly crawling around as lively as ever. And so Zoe turned to her dad and said, Daddy, let's kill it. Okay, maybe a bit morbid, but to Zoe, a dead turtle was going to be better than an alive one. The 19th century Christian evangelist Dwight L. Moody maybe said it better. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. Now, why would D.L. Moody say that when he's dead, he'd be more alive than ever? Because his expectation that what was beyond death was better than life, which begs the question, what happens when we die? What happens when Jesus comes back and returns again? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, we will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. Those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. And then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, in one hand in this life, we, we hold grief. We have to hold it and process it because death stings. But in the other hand, in this life, we can and must hold expectation. Expectation that one day death will no longer have the final say. Death will not have the final victory. Expectation that we will be raised to life and that our bodies will be transformed expectation that we will be reunited with those we love and miss who had saving faith in Jesus. Paul makes it clear, continuing on in Thessalonians, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together to meet the Lord and we will be with the Lord forever. And then he concludes, therefore, that's my hope for this message, therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. What's the encouragement? It's that we can grieve with the expectation for the day that Jesus will return and make everything new. 
the day we will be reunited with those other believers and constantly in the presence of Jesus, which is greater than anything this life can offer. Now, you might be wondering, when is this gonna happen? Are we nearing the return of Christ? Are we nearing the end times? That's a fascinating subject for a lot of people. And I gotta tell you, you're gonna have to come back next week to hear about that from our senior pastor, Jason Strand, as he addresses that. But third thing to deal with grief is this, to grieve with perspective. You know, it's one thing to have expectation for what's next. It's another to let grief reframe our perspective on the here and now. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, penned this thought, fascinating thought. He says, better to spend your time at at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter, for sadness has a refining influence on us. Now, why would Solomon write that? Well, think about it. Attend a wedding, and we'll have a good time. Maybe even reflect on love and marriage, but attend a funeral. I promise we'll walk away with a renewed perspective on life and what matters most. What's the renewed perspective for those of us alive? It's it's gratitude. Grateful for another day. Grateful for breath in our lungs. Grateful to have another moment playing catch with my son. Watching my daughter score a goal. Grateful to tuck your kids into bed. Grateful to read a book or listen to a book. Grateful to attend a birthday party, to go camping or driving a car. Grateful to be in church with all of you. Grateful to participate in making this world just a little bit better. And I realize that maybe there are some of you sitting there thinking, I can't be grateful. I'm too overwhelmed with grief. And I realize grief doesn't just disappear. It comes and goes, and usually at times we least expect it. But those who hold grief well do so while also holding gratitude. They allow their perspective to be shaped by what's left and what's to come, not just what's lost. Author Lee Strobel told a story like this. He said, let's imagine It's January 1st, 2023, and we had the worst day of our lives. That morning, we found out we'd been fired from our job. We totaled our car by driving backwards into the garage door. We lost the cat we'd given our daughter for Christmas, and the whole family got the stomach flu, okay? But then on January 2nd, we received a notice that we'd inherited $10 million from an uncle we didn't even know existed. And so the rest of that year, we rebuilt our dream home. We found a job we love. We bought two brand new cars. We went on several vacations. We lost the cat plus all the kittens they made while wandering the streets just multiplied in front of us. And we gave generously to friends and family members. Now picture a year has passed. It's January 1st, 2024. And someone asks you, how how was 2023? (laughs) You say, man, it was incredible. Totally forgetting that January 1st was the worst day of your life. See, Lee summed it up like this. This is how the perspective of eternity shapes our lives now. 
in eternity with all that's left and all that's still to come, ages and ages, the grief we experience here on this earth will be just a distant and vague memory. And with that perspective, we live with gratitude for what's left and what's to come. While we wait, though, we live in what theologians refer to as the now and not yet. The not yet, well, it's, it's that final victory, the end that God promises that has not yet come. The now, unfortunately, many of us are still living with this January 1st type of grief. And I'm guessing, again, that some of you might be sitting there thinking, even though it doesn't make logical sense, rational sense in light of eternity, that you trade those future promises of not yet to have a better now, to roll over in bed and find that spouse there again, to receive a hug one more time from the person that you miss, to have one more conversation and I get that, I, I really do, personally, I get that. But because that won't happen in this life, I think our only option is to do this last thing, and it's to grieve with hope. See, I want you to see the story of someone who has experienced overwhelming grief, but has done so while doing his best to grieve with hope. I met Jay four years ago after what he experienced was the worst day of his life, and he's inspired me ever since. Take a look at his story. Today is the fourth anniversary of Jason's passing away, so if you could remove your hats, we'll have a quick moment of silence in honor of Jason's fourth anniversary. Thank you very much, everybody. Appreciate it. Jason on three. Jason on three. One, two, three, Jason! Jason was a fun-loving kid. He loved sports. He was a good athlete. And anything he touched, he was really good at. We both loved baseball. And I started coaching him when he was seven years old, up until 15, probably. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I don't know if he enjoyed it as much as I did. It's always tough being the kid of a parent that's a coach, but it was pretty special. Jason went through the ranks in Lake Elmo traveling baseball, and as he came up, he played first base, but he loved being on the mound, and he, he, he got on top of that mound, and he was a whole different person. And eventually, when he got to Stillwater High School, his junior year, he was all-state, all-conference, and yeah, he, he took him to the state championship. So Jason's senior year comes around, and Jason comes up to me, and he says, Dad, I hurt my arm, and I'm having trouble throwing, so can we go to the doctor and see what's going on? And it turned out he had a labrum issue, so he had labrum surgery. He came out of the surgery, fine, but he, he just wasn't able to pitch his senior year because he didn't have enough time for recovery. As the year went on, we started seeing some behavioral differences with him. He was, wasn't the same Jason. We thought it was maybe he's just depressed because he wasn't doing the thing he loved so much. 
and it just started getting worse and worse. So this had been going on for years now. And one day, Jason said, Dad, can I talk to you? And he said, Dad, after surgery in high school, I had an issue with pain meds. And now I'm at a spot where I don't know what to do. I, I can't get off of them. At the time, I, you know, I didn't know anything about addiction. I, it, it was new to me. I, I just thought it was something that you could possibly fix in the clinic. But little did I know, it wasn't going to be that easy. So over the course of the next six years, Jason went through treatment. He was in and out of hospitals. He physically and mentally was just declining. Um, it, it was really hard to watch. It, it just went on and on and on. We basically slept with one eye open all the time. We, you know, feared for him. We feared for ourselves. Addiction basically destroyed him. And it was something that we never thought could possibly happen to him. In a last-ditch attempt to help Jason, we told him that he could stay at our house for a while. Then on May 23rd, 2019, I came down the stairs and I saw Jason on the couch, on his knees and elbows, and had his cell phone in his hand. So my heart started beating, and I came to the room, and I yelled Jason's name, and he didn't answer. I went and shook him, and he was just cold. And I knew right there he was gone. It was just shock for me. I, I didn't know what to do, and all I could say was something good's got to come out of this. Something good's got to come out of this. At the time, I didn't even know what fentanyl was. I never even heard of it. Now we hear it every day, but sure enough, it was fentanyl poisoning. In my family, at least, we handle grief differently. Myself, my wife Vicky, my daughter Jenna, it was all different. There's this sudden loss that a part of you is gone now. It's so hard to comprehend that he's not going to be there anymore. And at the end, I, I think grief is something that you have to go through. And in my case, I don't think it'll ever end. I hope it never does because I don't want him to be forgotten. And with grief for me, I don't want to say it gets better. The, the pain is always there, but the suffering isn't. The suffering isn't there as much. It's something that you can kind of control and, and you can move forward in your life. So when Jason passed away and we are calmed down just a little bit, Vicki and I discussed, you know, what do we do? And we decided to just bring an awareness to opioids and educate people on them. We own a nutrition shop in Woodbury, so we put up posters of Jason telling a story and not exaggerating, we've talked to hundreds of people about opioids and addiction and it's, a, it's been a blessing for us. I was asked to talk to Stillwater High School where Jason went and each semester I talked to all six health classes and I, I carried it on to talking to colleges and nurses and that kind of thing. and, and then, talking to people, it just brought a new meaning to the word hope. It, it was like, not that I'm doing it, but through, through me, God is giving people hope in these situations with addiction, with grief in general. On top of that, I was asked by um, the coaches 
in the Lake Elmore organization if they could put on a tournament for Jason. And I said, sure. Turns out the next year they said, hey, well, why aren't you coach with us? And as hard as it was that first game to be coaching without Jason being there, um, I, I quickly started enjoying it and helping kids again and um, just, just being a coach. So through Jason, I've been given a new meaning for hope and, and I live it every day. Hi, boy. Hey, couldn't have written it any better once again. Seriously, guys. means a lot tonight. So it was a tough day all day, and like I said, you guys have helped me to move forward through this whole thing since Jason passed, being part of this team. And it's just kind of icing on the cake. I, you, you know he's smiling up there. But um, thanks for what you guys do, and let's keep it going this year. This is fun, this is fun. Little did we know that um, when God intertwined our stories, Jay and my story, four years ago. Jay is now coaching the same age of kids as my son Maddox. And um, those boys, I know a lot of those boys. I play on the same team, club, club teams, we play against them. That, that Lake Elmo team is good. You maybe didn't catch this, but on that four-year anniversary of Jason's passing, when we sent that film crew out, they went on a walk-off base hit, and that's why they were celebrating and uh, they're pretty good, but they haven't played White Bear yet, okay? So we're... <laughs> but Jay, um, Jay and his family began attending Eagle Brook four years before Jason passed, kind of right in the heart of some of his troubles. And, and Jay will tell you that it was his faith in Christ for he and Vicky, and that hope for a better future that, that got them through. Jay wrote these words on his son's fourth anniversary of his death. Jay writes, hope. Hope is what gets me through the day and allows me to move forward. It allows me to function. I still remember our pastor saying at Jason's service that we have hope for eternal life, hope for a new body in heaven, and hope for a new permanent home. And Jay says, I remember thinking, I don't want just hope. I want more. But now looking back, he says the hope he was speaking of is real. It's not a wish, it's a reality. The hope that I will see Jason once again is all I need. And this hope comes from Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. One day they will be his people completely, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And on that day, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne will say, I am making everything new. The encouragement for us is that one day, when Jesus comes back, everything sad will come untrue. And on that day, Jesus will come back to make a new heaven and a new earth. It will be better than anything we can imagine. On that day, we will be reunited with those we love and miss.
And in the meantime, while, while we wait, while we grieve, and I wish, we all wish there was something we could do to end that grief. What else can we do other than to grieve? Grieve with people, grieve with expectation for that, that future with Jesus. To grieve with perspective, to be grateful for another day. And to grieve with hope like Jay and his wife, Vicki. That's all we can do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's a hard message. It's hard to think about grief and death. It's heavy. But you provide a hope that passes beyond our understanding. And it's a hope that we cling to. It's that faith that you have given us that we put our trust in. God, we want, we want the world to be made right. And we know, God, that you have the final victory in those things. But in the meantime, God, may we live lives like Jay and Vicky and his family, who while still processing grief, and they will have to for the rest of their lives, they're grieving to provide hope to others. Hope to kids like my son Maddox and his buddies. I pray that you help us to live with that kind of hope in the midst of our suffering and pain. Lord Jesus, we love you. We cling to you. We put our trust in you. That's all we can do. And we long for those days in the future where you will wipe away every tear and there will be no more mourning or pain or sorrow. We love you, God. We put our faith and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you'd like prayer, we'll have a prayer team down front.